Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and I just love doing this show every week with you. Just the privilege of being part of this whole emerging science of spirituality, health, and wellness, and the intersection of all these ancient ideas and modern knowledge is an incredible thrill to me. And as I do my work, as we do live workshops and do research studies and writing and all the points of contact with people in this field, I just feel so privileged to be part of this, this whole wonderful community and approach each day like a child at play. I was reading somewhere recently that children laugh an average of 200 times a day, 200 times a day, children laugh. I have a new grandchild and our, our fourth so far. And it just is amazing to watch this little girl just laugh. She just sees the whole world as, a, as, a, as an excuse to be delighted. And then adults laugh around 15 times a day. Now, if you do the math there, it's like adults laugh about 5% of as much as children laugh. And I think sometimes... Did we get a memo when we turned 17 saying that, oh, now your laugh quota goes down 95%? No, we didn't. So why, why not just bring laughter and joy and goodwill and compassion and altruism and enthusiasm and optimism to every single day? And as you know, I'm a big proponent of meditation. I recommend you meditate first thing in the morning. I've talked in the show a lot about the benefits of doing it early because then you have all of those delicious delta and theta waves from rapid eye movement and non-rapid eye movement sleep. So it's really worth setting your frame every day with that period of meditation. So I encourage you to make that a commitment, not just something you'd like to do or aspire to do, or you put on your to-do list to maybe meditate some days, but make it an absolutely firm commitment. It can make an enormous difference to your life. And the, the evidence for it just keeps stacking up. If you look at my book, Bliss Brain, there are about 400 scientific studies in the back of the book, and they just show study after study that meditation changes your brain. How much? Well, after just 12 minutes a day, eight weeks, one study showed that significant anatomical changes had occurred in the brain. Now think about that for a moment. Anatomical changes in your brain. This isn't just changing your mind. This isn't just a state. This is literally turning states to traits. It's literally building neural connections of happiness, creativity, resilience, and joy in your brain. Hardware. We are creating hardware in your brain through consciousness, through software. I mean, if that's not exciting, what is? We can literally, we have the superpower of reshaping our brains. And you want to shape your brain not by triggering those circuits of anxiety or anger or resentment or listening and, and following all the, the negative stuff going on in the world. You want to be taking control of that process and utilizing your superpower to build a happy, creative, resilient brain. So go ahead and commit to that daily meditation practice. You can find a whole bunch of free tracks in my book, Bliss Brain. We have free tracks on Insight Timer at blissbrain.com. You not only get all the meditations free at blissbrain.com, you get the book free 
thanks to a wonderful, generous gift from our publisher, Hay House. So do yourself a favor of using those techniques. There are many, many options, and they can make all the difference in your levels of health and happiness. So that's my strong recommendation to you is that you avail yourself of all these wonderful methods, and then see how you can use your consciousness to turn those wonderful feeling states into hardwired neurological traits. My guest today is Steve Taylor. And I've been wanting to have him on the show for a long time. His newest book is called The Clear Light. And his, this is a book of reflections and poetry. He is very popular and well-known in non-dualist circle, circles. He is a lecturer at Leeds Beckett University in Manchester, England. He is also the author of several other books, including The Calm Center and The Leap. For more on his work, go to his website, Stephen, and that's Stephen with a B, Stephen M. Taylor.com. Stephen M. Taylor.com. Steve, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Dawson. It's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. As I was just flipping through the book at random and reading, reading, reading some of the, the reflections here, it just struck me that to write about stillness as you do, you have to <laughs> be in a very still place yourself mm. and write from that, that center. And my guess is you probably weren't always in that still place in your life. What was your journey from there to here? It was quite difficult. I mean, like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't arrive in a, a state of stillness, you know, without some journey beforehand. And my journey began really when I was quite young, when I was maybe in my teens. That's when I first became aware of myself as, you know, as slightly different to other people around me. And I, I felt that there was something wrong with me. You know, I wondered why I couldn't be like other people. I didn't fit in. I thought I was strange. Maybe I thought I was crazy. And now I look back and realize I was having kind of spiritual impulses, which I didn't understand. I was having spiritual experiences, which I didn't understand, you know, feeling a sense of connection to my surroundings and feeling a sense of deep inner well-being. But it was only when I was in my early 20s, I began to read books about spirituality. I thought, ah, ah now I understand. <laughs> now, I, now I have a kind of a frame of reference to make sense of my experiences. And I wasn't crazy after all, or maybe I was crazy. <laughs> lots of other people were crazy. I, wasn't, I was crazy not alone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, which, which were those books that first kind of helped you connect the dots? Well, the first book that really uh, attracted me, I was in a bookshop and I saw a book with the title Mysticism. It's not a very well-known book. It was by a guy called F.C. Happold, a kind of scholar of mysticism. But it was a collection of writings from the mystics. And it was a collection, uh, you know, selections from the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching, all, all of the great spiritual books. It was, uh, and I read these selections and I read the, the accounts from mystics of their own experiences. I thought, yeah, this is, this, is, this is like the experiences I've been having. It really made sense to me. And uh, I found this new sense of acceptance, sense of self-acceptance. So it was, a, it was a great feeling to be able to understand myself. And then you, you realize your experiences in the context of a human experience that's been happening for millennia in those other cultures and those are different cultures. And clearly then as part of not just one culture as part of the universal human experience, that kind of gives you a, a place to put those experiences you're having. Exactly. Because I didn't have, even though I'm, I was born in England, I didn't have a Christian upbringing. My parents were not religious at all. My school was not religious. So I had no religion in my upbringing. So I didn't really identify with any tradition. I didn't really identify with the Christian mystics, but I, de I identified with mysticism as a whole. Most of all, I identified with people who were not from any spiritual or religious background, people like Walt Whitman, 
the great poet or D.H. Lawrence, the great English novelist. They were mystics, but they had no, you know, they were not connected to any particular spiritual tradition. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is that when you look at the statistics of people who have these mystical experiences, of course, you find that they are, some of them are Taoists, some of them are Jews, some of them are Hindus, some of them are Muslims, some of them are Christians, and a lot of them are atheists. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. That That's one thing I've found in my research in psychology is that a lot of seemingly ordinary people who don't know anything about spirituality have spiritual experiences. And a lot of people who don't know anything about spirituality have spiritual awakenings, which change them for the rest of their lives. And initially, they're, they're sometimes confused. They think, well, what's happened to me? Why have I changed? Why is everything so different? But eventually, they do gravitate towards spiritual practices and paths, and they do gain a context to make sense of what's happened to them. And then when you were having those, initially those mystical experiences as a teenager, and then realizing what was happening when you were reading that book and other literature, was there any sort of big, uh, what Andrew Newberg, the neuroscientist, calls a big e-enlightenment experience, one that changed you permanently forever? Not really. It was, uh, you know, I had lots of lots of experiences. There, was, there wasn't there was a single experience which changed me. It was a gradual process of self-understanding. I mean, I, I had some experiences which, which were bigger than others. And there was, there was a period in my late 20s, I kind of fell away from spirituality. I got involved in, in music. I was a musician. And I got into the kind of, you know, the kind of hedonistic life that musicians lead, you know, drinking a lot and smoking and staying up late. And I began to feel very frustrated because I'd, I'd lost touch with myself. And there was an experience I had around that time that was very profound. That, and that sort of it brought me back to myself. It was like a big wake up call thing. You know, what are you doing? Why, why have you let go of your spiritual self? Why have you become disconnected? So it was kind of like a reconnection experience, which happened just in the middle of the night. I woke up in the middle of the night and suddenly I was somewhere else. I was sort of floating in this ocean of bliss. It was a, it's very difficult to describe, but I felt that I was part of the universe. I was kind of floating along with the universe. I was kind of infinite and the whole universe was filled with waves of bliss and everything was in harmony. I thought, you know, there are no problems. Everything is perfectly fine. There's nothing to worry about. Everything is just, everything is just perfect. So that was, that was one of the most powerful experiences I've had. And it was a, a reconnection to myself. How did that translate into shifting from music back into spirituality and back into psychology? That was a, that was a gradual process. I actually ended up giving up music. Well, not giving up music. You can never give up music. <laughs> but I gave up sort of performing music. I I, do, I realized it wasn't for me. I lo- I love music, but the lifestyle was not for me at that time. Maybe I could handle it now, but the lifestyle just just wasn't conducive with a spiritual path. So I decided I was going to give up being in a band and give up professional music. And that, and that kind of made me think, well, what, do, what should I do now? What is my calling? What is my path? And I'd always had a, a slightly intellectual side of my personality. I was always good at, I did well at school. I passed exams. I went to university. So I, I always you know, had this sort of academic side. And I, I decided I wanted to try to understand my own spirituality in terms of psychology. Uh, and I wanted to understand other people's spirituality in psychological terms, just to try and make some, partly to try to understand why people have spiritual awakenings and whether they can be not necessarily generated, but whether you can understand the conditions that give rise to them and maybe help people to generate those conditions. 
So that's why yeah. I, became, I, I went back to university and became a psychologist. Yeah. And then you start to also then look at the links between the two. And it's interesting that when you talk to people in the psychotherapy community, you find a lot of them have had really profound spiritual experiences and they've often approached psychology as a way of trying to understand them. And they're kind of two big routes in. One is being highly traumatized and trying to figure out how to heal yourself, fix yourself. And the other is how to understand these kinds of experiences. And people do need some way to hold them because they, I know very often, there isn't a place that they can go to talk about them. I know Andrew Newberg did a, a large scale study of people who've had them and they tried very similar experiences. The mystical experience essentially is, is, is similar throughout all the traditions. And yet one of the striking features of his survey of people who've had those experiences was that they didn't tell anybody. They didn't tell their wives, their husbands, their daughters, their sons. They just, their, their rabbis, their priests, they, there was no place, they didn't have a, have a place to put this in their, their lives. And so mm. that's, I think, a, a big need. Yeah, that's quite sad, really, when you think about it, isn't it? Because th these are such blissful experiences. They're some of the greatest experiences we can have as human beings. And to feel that we can't talk about them is, is very sad. I read some similar research about near-death experiences that I think it was 20, only 27% 27 of people who had near-death experiences talked about them with their friends or relatives. That was maybe 20 years ago. I think now it, probably, it would probably be more. But I think there has been a bit of a taboo about spiritual experiences or mystical experiences. And it's going to take some time for that taboo to fade away. I think it is fading away gradually, but it's definitely still there. And you wonder how many teenagers are having them. And I remember, I'm trying to think of the hard data here, and I can't remember the numbers, but one book I read talked about the number of teenagers who are having these experiences. And apparently it's you know around 15 years old, that same age time frame. Many, many teenagers are having some kind of awakening experience like that. I remember reading some similar research that there was a guy called Alistair Hardy here in the UK who did a survey of thousands of spiritual experiences, and he found that they were most common in children and adolescents, which was, is quite surprising, but maybe because people don't talk about them. But especially adolescents, you know, they're, they're a little bit unsure of themselves, they're a little bit unsure of, you know, what other people may think of them, so they may try to keep those experiences to themselves. But I think it is changing. You know, when I do talks, there are often quite a lot of young people there. And my feeling is that young people are now more open about these experiences. Than they used to be. Yeah. And so what is that mystical experience like to you? Just walk us through how it begins, what you feel in your body, what frame of mind you're in, uh, where you go, where you travel. Give us like a, a tour <laughs> <laughs> of the mystical experience. <laughs> what, is that, what is that countryside like, Steve? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's quite simple, really. I, I think the term mystical, mystical experience implies that it's something more esoteric than it actually is. That's why I prefer to use the term awakening experience, because that suggests that it's a kind of opening of consciousness and an expansion of awareness. And it's basically an experience in which your or my awareness becomes more intense. So, oh, well, yeah, I had a sort of a slight awakening experience this morning. So I'll describe that. <laughs> I was I went for a run by the river and it was a sunny day, sunny morning. And I was surrounded by trees and grass and bushes, surrounded by greenness. So after a certain amount of time, after maybe 10 minutes, 
I began to feel that the the natural phenomena around me were more vivid and more real and more beautiful. I felt kind of surrounded by this glowing, rich greenness. And the sky looked so perfectly blue, so still and so expansive, so endless. I felt kind of intoxicated by the beauty around me. And also the river, the reflections of the sunlight on the water, the patterns of water, the currents flowing and splashing. It was all very beautiful. And I felt a sense of connection as well. That, that's a part, it's, for me, it's always about connection. It's partly about how real and beautiful everything becomes, but also there is a sense of connection that I am part of this natural world. I am not separate. You know, often as human beings, we feel that we are separate entities living within our own mental space. But in these experiences, there is a, a transcendence of separateness and a, a feeling that you're participating in the world. You're not just an observer. You are part of the scene. You are participating. Does that kind of transcendent oneness experience happen for you in meditation as well? Yeah, it's obviously it's slightly different in meditation because it's more of an inward experience. But yeah, sometimes, yeah, depends how, how busy my mind is. Sometimes it takes a while for my mind to slow down. But after a while, sometimes it takes 15 minutes for my mind to slow down. And then it's as if I go deeper into myself and there's a sense of calmness, a sense of stillness and a sense of connecting to something deeper within me, and maybe something beyond me as well. Yeah, and that 15-minute period seems to be common in meditation studies, that if you look at MRI or EEG brain research, that there's this preliminary period where people are distracted, their thoughts are arising, they have to kind of direct their attention. But if they do that for that 10, 15, 20 minutes or so, they then kind of click into that groove and they're there. Right, that's interesting. I didn't know that, but that, that makes sense to me. You know, sometimes my mind is, is quieter and it doesn't take as long, but often, you know, it, it can take 15 minutes. And there is a, sometimes when I, I don't know if, if it's the same to you, but sometimes when I sit down to meditate, I think, wow, I'm just not in the mood today. It's not going to work. You know, it's going to be a struggle. <laughs> but, you know, five or 10 minutes, it gets easier. And after 15 minutes, it's like, wow, this is, this is nice. I can carry on with this for, for an hour. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. It's, it's hard to come back. And you can see why the ancient mystics would go to a monastery or desert hermitage or renounce the world and go to a convent because it's a really nice place to be. And in my books, I talk about how that's nice for you, but we need you there on the picket lines. We need you there yeah. being a mystical activist. We need you doing things in society. We need you operating an ethical business. We need you to be contributing yeah. to, to charity and to, and to make the world a better place. So the, the great thing is we don't have to go away now. We can have our regular lives as well. Yeah, I completely agree. In fact, I wrote a poem about that in The Clear Light called Coming Down from the Mountain about how it's, it's easy to be enlightened on a mountain when you're away from the world. But when you come down from the mountain, then you have to maintain your enlightenment within everyday life and share it with other people. Yes, and that can be quite a challenge. We're going to go to a break in a moment, but before we do, I just want to mention your website again. It's Stephen M. Taylor. And again, if you go to Steve's website, it's Stephen with a V, S-T-E-V-E-N, and then M, the letter M, Taylor. Com, and you can get any one of his eight books there, as well as The Clear Light, his newest book, which is full of just very centering meditations and poems. And so you, you read them and you is inviting you into his, his, own, his own space here. And you, you very easily go in there as well. The poems just invite you in very, very readily. It's easy to lose yourself in them and be in that state. And it's powerful to have some way of getting there very quickly. So we're going to go to a commercial break in a moment over here. Please stay tuned for more. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. We'll be right back after a short break.
Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and every week I just get an hour with you to be happy together and get enthusiastic about what's going on now in the world of science, in the world of meditation, in the world of healing, in the world of happiness. And there is so much going on that is so profoundly provocative in the sense that it's reshaping the whole way we see the world. As we're quantifying the effects of these states in our bodies, we're realizing that meditation, mystical states, elevated emotions don't just produce feelings of well-being. They're literally reshaping our brains. In my book, Bliss Brain, I give the example of a TV personality called Graham Phillips. He did an eight-week mindfulness course, and the part of his brain, the circuit that handles emotion regulation, grew in only eight weeks by 22.8%. So we're, we're creating profound shifts in our brain anatomy as we practice the things you'll hear about on the show. So I encourage you to fill your mind with positive thoughts, with positive media, positive experiences, and practice these things because they can make a huge difference in your, not just your states, but the traits that you bring into the world. If you'd like a free copy of Bliss Brain, go to blissbrain.com. You'll also get a whole bunch of free meditations there. For a copy of Steve's book, Their Light, Pick it up at a retailer or go to his website, which is stephenmtaylor.com. That's Stephen with a V. And I'll just very helpfully for those who are joining us by video, hold that up so you can see it. <laughs> really get the picture there. And it's part of the Eckhart Tolle series from our wonderful friends at New World Library, Mark Allen and New World Library. And it's part of this whole series of books there. They're publishing under the Eckhart Tolle imprint. So Steve, thinking about these experiences and the, the kinds of states that you achieve, in the book, you also have several poems dealing with things like grief, loss, sadness, adversity. And how do these kinds of experiences change your perception of those normal life scrapes and bumps? We always have a choice. You know, whenever we encounter any experiences or whenever any events occur in our lives, we always have a choice, and it's usually a choice we make unconsciously about whether to resist or accept them. And often we resist experiences and events, and because of that, we experience frustration, discord, and disharmony in our lives. But when we consciously shift into a mode of acceptance, everything can change. You know, the, an experience which is negative can become positive through an attitude of acceptance. I think death is a good example. You know, death is like the, the most enormous event in our lives, the end of our lives. And it's one of human beings' biggest fears, naturally. And that's because we resist death. You know, we, a lot of us shy away from actually contemplating our deaths. And understandably, that if we do contemplate our death, it creates a sense of anxiety, a sense of fear of losing everything that makes up our lives. But when people shift into a mode of acceptance in relation to death, which often happens when people encounter death, you know, if you have a, a serious illness, an accident, which brings you close to death, that often shifts people into a mode of acceptance. And then in a paradoxical way, they lose their fear of death and they accept death as a result of encountering it. And everything changes, you know, not just their attitude to death, the way they live their life changes. They become much more appreciative of their lives. They become much more appreciative of the people in their lives. And they become aware that, you know, the, the, maybe there is something more than physical death. They have a sense that uh, physical death is not necessarily the end of their identity and their consciousness. 
And that awareness that there's something more beyond us is, again, a profoundly transformative experience and concept. So it does change things. And then we've used this term a few times before that might be unfamiliar to some people, non-dualism. And it's used in the reviews of your book. It's, you're, you're popular among the non-dual meditators. Just ex briefly explain to us what non-dualism is. Well, earlier we talked about a sense of separation. One of the most common human experiences is separation. We feel as though we are an entity who lives inside our bodies, inside our own mental space. And we feel that the world is out there, or the people are out there on the other side. And that sense of separation creates a sense of isolation, feeling that you're somehow cut off. You know, you are, you are like a fragment that's been broken off from the whole. So there's kind of like a, a desire to return. There's kind of like a, a longing to become part of the whole again. I think that longing and that frustration is at the root of a lot of human behavior, uh, the desire to accumulate things you don't need, the de endless desire for success and fame and so forth. I think that's caused by this longing for, to, to become part of the whole again. Well, the meaning of non-duality um, is simply that you transcend separateness. You're no longer an entity trapped inside your mental space. In some strange way, you're part of the whole. You lose the sense of separateness and feel a sense of connection to the whole. And in that non-dual state, you know, life becomes a lot easier because you lose that frustration. You lose that sense of being a fragment and you feel the sense of wholeness uh, and a sense of oneness. And you're describing it not as a belief in oneness, but as the literal felt sense in your body of oneness. It's an experience, yeah. It's, it's not a belief. It is an experience. And I think, you know, the experience of oneness is probably more common than we might think. I think a lot of people experience it from time to time without actually naming it as a spiritual experience or as a, as a non-dual experience. But there are, there are certain times in our lives when we feel a sense of oneness with nature, a sense of oneness with another person, uh, love, you know, what, what is love but a, a feeling of connection and oneness with another person. Maybe an animal, you know, a sense of profound sense of connection with an animal. But in, in the sort of, you know, the... Uh, the the most fundamental non-dual state, the sense of oneness is all-encompassing. You know, you have a constant sense that you are part of the whole. And as a psychologist, you know, a kind of an unthinking psychiatrist might think that that's a kind of mental disorder, but it's the opposite of a mental disorder. It's a, <laughs> it's a kind of like, it's not abnormal, it's kind of supernormal. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, you know, it's the highest, one of the highest human states that we can experience. Uh, yeah, actually, one, one friend of mine did wind up in the, the psychiatric ward when he had a, a profound mystical experience. He didn't know what to do with it. He was actually an executive with a telecom company and he had no, no training, he had no background for it. And he just began to have these experiences and they thought he was psychotic and they locked him up. <laughs> oh dear. That's sad, but it's, uh, it's quite common. You know, well, I think it's becoming less, less, less common now, but it's not unusual for people to be misdiagnosed as being psychotic. It's, it's kind of understandable because spiritual awakenings, especially when they are sudden and dramatic, they can be quite explosive. They can be quite disruptive. They can, you know, disrupt your concentration, your memory. They can make it difficult for you to function in a normal way. They can make it difficult to hold down a job. So sometimes those disturbances are misdiagnosed as psychosis. Yeah, I wonder how many people who have had them and then not been able to explain them have wound up in that, that kind of situation. We're going to go to a break right now. You're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. We're talking with Steve Taylor about his book, 
the clear light. If you're watching on video, I'm holding it up. If you're listening on audio, go to his website, stephenmtaylor.com. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. And by listening to this and other shows like this, you are marinating your consciousness in positive ideas, positive thoughts, positive images, positive ideas, and those can make a huge difference to your life. I really recommend you do that. Just again, marinating is a good word. We put a piece of steak or we put a vegetable and marinate and let it soak in all those juices. Just surround yourself with positivity books, media, music, just fill your life with inspirational ideas because there's a lot out there to focus on that is not inspirational that will pull you down. So it's important to take charge of the superpower you have, shape your brain, and then direct your attention to things that really give you a healthier and happier life. And you can do that with deliberate attention. In my book, Mind to Matter, I list about 30 practices, EFP tapping, meditation, grounding, yoga, qigong, about 30 practices that will take you to those states. And I recommend you play around with these practices and find one that works for you. For a copy of the book, go to the website mindtomatter.com. You can also download seven free meditations there that really shift you. In MRI research now, we're showing that people who use these meditations actually have profound brain changes within 30 days with their compassion centers lighting up and their misery centers shutting down. You want that to be what your brain looks like. And you can find those 30 practices at mindtomatter.com. For more on Steve Taylor's work, go to his website, Stephen, Stephen with a B, Stephen M. Taylor. Dot com. And for a copy of his inspirational book, The Clear Light, it's really powerful to have that poetry, have that media around you so that when you're losing your way, when you aren't feeling certain of how to orient yourself toward positivity, you can find these things all around you. You, you can't walk through, uh, you can't walk two feet in my house without finding something inspirational to touch or grab or read or look at. So you know, just surround yourself with these, these messages and make that your, your reality. Steve, I'm curious about what you do by way of a daily routine to keep yourself on track, like on waking up, what do you do? How do you close your day out? What do you do when you feel yourself getting drifting or overwhelmed or dealing with challenges? What's your daily routine like? I, I always start the day with a meditation before breakfast, uh, maybe 25 minutes, half an hour. And I, I, I like to run as well. I go for maybe two or three times a week, I go for a run. And I think running is a kind of meditation for me. I think for a lot of people, I think, you know, the, maybe the rhythm of running is a bit like a mantra in meditation. It sort of settles you down and enters your mind. But for me, it's largely about nature. I get a lot from nature. So I love to spend time in nature. And especially running in nature is, is very powerful. I love to run by the river or in the forest. I love swimming too. I like to go swimming, uh, ideally in the ocean, but that's not always possible. So I, I go to the local swimming pool. But swimming is also meditative. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of exercise as a, as a meditative uh, pursuit. You know, I think there are many kinds of exercise which have, you know, they, you know, swimming, running, they bring you back down into your body. Often we get too caught up, caught up in our minds and exercise brings us back into our bodies, brings us a sense of rootedness and a sense of sense of calm. So I do that a lot. And I also I've got young kids. So 
I love spending time with my kids, which is also, you know, it's uh, gets you away from your mind. You get into the present moment, you know, the joy of playing with your kids. I love to play soccer with my kids on the park, you know, so, so you know, I like to live in my body. That's a big part of my routine. Yeah, uh, there's wonderful phrase called embodied spirituality. And if you look at the writings of a lot of the medieval mystics, they talked about mortifying the flesh and getting transcending the body. And I love that the modern mystic is in the body and <laughs> yeah. uh, really inhabiting That's the weird, body. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it's weird that they, they saw the body as an enemy. You know, they wanted yeah. to torture themselves. But it's the opposite. You know, the body is sacred. The body is, is full of spirit. It's not the opposite of spirit. It is spirit. It's a manifestation of spirit. So, you know, you've got to treat your body with care. And you can gain a lot from living in your body. And then when you're challenged by things, maybe you have a faculty conference at work and things don't go well, or you have some other kind of personal issue, how do you stay on track? What I find is that if I have some sort of stresses, if I, if I have stresses or worries or problems, I'm aware that you know it's one of the effects of those kinds of issues is that they... Is that they I'm trying to think of the right verb, but it's as, it's as if they sort of entrap you within your own mind. You become very mind-centered and thoughts start to become restless. They start to, your mind starts to churn away, producing thought after thought. And you sort of lose touch, lose touch with your body. You lose touch with your surroundings because you become, you become centered within your mind. And that's quite an unpleasant place, place to be. That's when you experience separation. So when that happens to me, I tend to reconnect with myself. I sometimes lie down and just try to move my attention down into my body. And when I move my attention to my body, I find that my thoughts start to slow down or um, spend a bit of time with my kids. You know, that brings me away from my mind. So, yeah, I think spending time with my kids is a, is a good sort of spiritual exercise. Kids <laughs> are all realists. Yeah. And in their bodies. <laughs> yeah, it's very grounding. And of course, you know, the medieval mystics, they wanted to be celibate and um, not have any children, didn't they? So it's another point of, uh, of difference from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great that we can meet our bodies and enjoy both the transcendent experiences and also just living happily and healthily in yeah. the physical. But um, yeah, I, I, I like to rest as well. You know, I, I like to lie down and be lazy sometimes. That's a, a great way of centering yourself and, you know, recovering from stress. Yes. Yeah. And then you've kept on uh, doing the work of being a lecturer, being a psychologist. Do you see pri private clients as well? No, I, I am mainly a researcher and lecturer. Okay. And what line of research? Well, it's, it's spirituality. I research the, uh, the psychology of spirituality. So I, I often, I sometimes collect reports of spiritual experiences and look for the common themes uh, one of the things I'm interested in is the different contexts in which spiritual experiences occur. I found that the main context is paradoxically, you know, uh, suffering and turmoil, psychological turmoil seems to have a, a triggering effect for spiritual experiences. But also contact with nature is a big trigger. Meditation, obviously, prayer, things like that. You know, sexual encounters are quite, quite closely associated to. And also I'm interested in an experience which I refer to as transformation through turmoil. That's when some people go through intense personal suffering, which may be associated with bereavement, maybe a diagnosis of cancer, maybe a long period of addiction. It's not uncommon for those people to undergo a, an identity shift when they permanently shift an ongoing spiritual state, a state of spiritual awakening. So I research those kinds of cases. When we come back from a break, I'd love to hear one of those stories of somebody who, who entered transformation in that way. You're listening to High Energy Health. The book is 
The Clear Light by Steve Taylor. You can get it either online or at stephenmtaylor.com. Also, I'd like to just ask you, please, if you like this book or any of Steve's other books, please give them a five-star review on Amazon. Now, Amazon has rules. And the, one of the rules is that Steve cannot ask you for a five-star review on Amazon for his own book. That's against Amazon's rules. But there's no rule against me asking you for a five-star review on Amazon. So I'm going to review the book on Amazon and give it a five-star review because it really touched me deeply when I began to read these beautiful poems and ideas and thoughts. They brought me to an elevated state. So go on Amazon. It's like tipping a waiter at the coffee shop. You want to give your favorite author a five-star Amazon review. So please go ahead and do that. And we'll be right back after a break. And we'll take a look at those, at, at how at least one story of transformation. Also after the break, we're going to cover where this whole trend of spirituality is taking the whole society, the whole, the whole globe. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and please join me each week for more of these amazing, inspiring, uplifting ideas. They really can make a difference in your life. And as you can tell, it makes you a whole lot happier. For a copy of my newest book, Bliss Brain, go to blissbrain.com. You'll also find a series of eight meditations there free on blissbrain.com. And we're now showing in, in MRI research that these are producing profound changes in 30 days of use in your brain, structural changes in your brain. So it's amazing that by using your consciousness in this way, you're shifting the hardware of your brain. For more on Steve Taylor's work, go to his website, stephenmtaylor.com. For his book, newest book, The Clear Light, or one of his earlier books, you can get more information there as well. Steve, two questions for this last part of our talk. And one of them is just give us an example of somebody that you looked at who did find spirituality through tragedy or adversity. There was a guy called uh, Kevin in my research who was an alcoholic or is an alcoholic. And um, he was also a successful business person. He was an architect with his own business, quite successful, quite profitable. But over the years, as his drinking became more extreme, he, his business began to fail. He lost his friends. Eventually, his wife threw him out and he lost contact with his kids and he lost his business. His business completely failed. He was severely in debt. So basically, he lost everything due to his alcoholism. And in the end, he had uh, 200 pounds, which is about $150 left in the bank. And he decided he was just going to buy as, as many bottles of whiskey as he could and try to drink himself to death, basically commit suicide. Uh, but then he realized that he remembered that his father had been interested in spirit, spiritualism. His father had believed in life after death. And so he thought, well, you know, what if I commit suicide and I'm, I'm still somewhere else? You know, if life continues in some other way, then it's just a complete waste of time. So he realized that he didn't actually want to commit suicide. And he was in a telephone box one evening and he saw an advertisement for AA, for Alcoholics Anonymous, for meetings. So he decided to go along to a meeting. He managed to stop drinking for one day. He went to three meetings the next day, three meetings the day after that. And he managed to stop drinking for a few days. And he, he reached the part of the AA process where you hand over your problem. He didn't believe in God, but he said he could conceive of some sort of higher power. So he decided he was going to hand over his problem to this higher power. He said to himself, this is too big for me to deal with. I'm just going to let go and hand it over to something else. No, you deal with it, I can't deal with it. And the moment he did that, he said that something changed inside him, something gave way inside him. He said it was as if this 
bliss that he'd never experienced before suddenly erupted inside him, suddenly exploded inside him. And he was filled with this tremendous positive energy, which he had never experienced before. And the world around him just came to life. Everything looked, looked fresh and beautiful and alive. And he looked around, he felt as though he'd been reborn. The world seemed to be a completely different place. And he expected this feeling to fade, but it just remained. Everywhere he went, he was filled with this blissful feeling. Everything looked beautiful and real. He felt somehow connected to other people. He felt as though he could sense other people's emotions and he wanted to do good things to other people. And the desire to drink faded away. It just strangely disappeared. And I spoke to him 15 years after this experience and it was still there. He said that he still felt like he was, he was on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> Life just seemed incredibly easy and, you know, fantastic, a wonderful experience. Um, it, it completely changed his life. You know, he became, he, he retrained as a counsellor. He wanted to help other addicts, other alcoholics. And it, it was, it, there's something miraculous about this transformation. It, it, it's impossible to explain. It's almost as if there is a latent higher self in some people which emerges when the ego breaks down due to intense suffering or due to intense loss or failure, then this latent higher self seems to naturally emerge and take the place of the old ego. Yeah, that wonderful analogy that the crack is where the light shines in. So yeah, happened to exactly. us, happened for us. And then just in the last few moments we have together, I, I'd love to get your vision of where this is taking us as a society, where is it taking people as, as a whole humankind, and what will the effects be in the, the coming decades? I know in my book, Bliss Brain, I looked at the number of people meditating. It was about 1% throughout history, but it mm -hmm. rose to 4% in Western countries by 2004. Now it's heading for 20%. It's well over 15%. So we've had this explosion in people looking for these elevated states and where do you see this taking us over the course of the next decades and history i think it's connected to evolution i believe in the evolution of consciousness i mean evolution has always been about consciousness it's not just been about physical changes in in, live, in living beings evolution from the beginnings of life on earth has been about the intensification of consciousness as living beings become more complex physically they also become more conscious. They become more aware of their own internal beings, more aware of the world outside them, more connected to each other. And that's exactly what spiritual experiences are about too. Spiritual experiences are about increasing awareness, about connection, about connecting to other people, connecting to the world. So I see spiritual experiences as a kind of continuation of the evolutionary process. So the fact that spiritual experiences are becoming more common, which is what research shows, the fact that more people are becoming interested in spirituality, the fact that more people are meditating, and the fact that more and more people are having experiences like Kevin, who I just described, this kind of awakening of a latent higher self. To me, it suggests that we are nearing, you know, well, it suggests that an evolution of consciousness is taking place. It suggests that we are in the midst of an evolutionary leap, I think. And I think over the coming decades, the momentum of this evolutionary change will increase. I think more people will meditate. More people will have spiritual experiences. More people will undergo, will undergo transformation through turmoil. And eventually, after a few decades, perhaps a few centuries, it will lead to a new kind of human being and a, and a new kind of human race. And just in a few words, what will that new human race look like? Well, there, there will be a transcendence of self-centeredness, transcendence of psychological discord. Life will become a lot easier and a lot more harmonious. The kind of self-centered thinking, the kind of group identity, which leads to conflict and competition will fade away. And there'll definitely be, you know, individually and socially and globally, 
there will be a great deal more harmony. Yeah, and imagine everyone in the world living in that state that you describe when you run and you feel one with nature. Steve, it's been such a joy to connect with you in the heart and mind today. I'm so grateful for you sharing your wisdom and your love and your passion and your wonderful spirit with people. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Uh, Please join us again next week for another episode of High Energy Health. For more on Stephen's book, The Clear Light or His Work, go to his website, stephenmtaylor.com, that's Stephen with a V, mtaylor.com. To get a copy of my newest book, Bliss Brain, for free, go to the website, blissbrain.com. Also, we're doing a huge international conference on Bliss Brain this coming weekend. So if you are interested, it's set up by our European partners. It's going to be running simultaneously in English, French, and Spanish. We'll actually be, be practicing these meditative techniques uh, repeatedly throughout the weekend. That's starting this next weekend. So if you'd like to join us, go ahead and just type in Bliss Brain Conference or Bliss Brain Dawson Church, and you will get, you will find that link to that live event. And it runs European time. It's 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. Central European time this coming weekend. And again, it'll be have simultaneous translation. We'll keep our translators working very hard at both the mystical concepts and language and the scientific ones, but they're they're up to the task. So we're gonna have a really practical time of implanting these techniques in our brains and our bodies. And you'll feel the shift in your body as you use these new neuroscience-based techniques. So thanks again for joining me. Do what it takes to love yourself, be kind to yourself, fill your world with that positivity that Steve and I are describing. It's been a pleasure to share with you. See you again next week.